Thanks, Steve. Well, good morning to you. Y'all right? Welcome. Uh, it's okay. Don't worry about that. Well, you got, we've got time to do that every single week. You got a chance to practice and say good morning. That's, that's fine. No big deal. Uh, hey, if you're new, my name is Steve, one of the pastors here. Again, uh, on behalf of Citadel Square, if you're new to Charleston, new to the area, new to the college scene, we welcome you here. We're excited to have you here, excited that your spiritual life might get connected to what Jesus wants to do in you and through you, and that's our goal here as a church, is to help you take your next step with Jesus Christ. So, uh, we are in the middle of a study of the book of 2 Corinthians. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and grab it. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And by way of introduction, I'd like you to look at just one verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 that'll form uh, an introduction to our time here together as we look at uh, grace and money. 2 Corinthians chapter 8 is where we're going to be. Y'all there? You got it? 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Take a look at, uh, we ended last week with 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Uh, And what I'd like to do is just spend a couple of moments introducing our time here together with what Paul says in this verse. This is a very compact verse. It has uh, eternal truths that impact every single Christian in the room. And I'd like to ask a question as we begin. Wherever you are in your relationship with God, wherever you are in the way that you look at your spiritual life, I'd like you to ask a question of yourself. And that question is, do you view God as a giver or a taker? In the middle of your spiritual life, do you fundamentally view God as somebody who wants something from you? He wants my money, he wants my obedience, he wants my enjoyment, what he wants to do really is is restrict my joy and well-being. Is that the picture of God that you have? Or do you view God as a, as a giver, as fundamentally one who is generous? And what we're going to do today is look at the nitty-gritty of giving, the nitty-gritty of money. And we said last week, we began talking about our time saying that Paul in his wisdom and God in his wisdom takes the word of God and puts together two very uh, different ideas to us, grace and money. And what Paul does is he puts them right together. And before we go on into the remainder of these few verses that we're going to look at today, I want us to think about that question. Do you view God as a giver or a taker? Do you think God is in heaven waiting for you to get your life together, to get your act together before he will bestow blessing upon you? Or do you believe that God has taken the initiative and God has moved towards us in generous grace? And the answer to that question really needs to be rooted in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9 says this, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is the doctrinal foundation of the Christian. It begins all of what we would say to you as a church, that every single Christian in the room is saved by grace through faith in what Jesus has done for them, not of their own, not their own working together to get their life together to somehow be pleasing to God in some way, but that God, because of his grace, sent Christ to die on the cross for our sins, which is what Paul says in this verse, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor 
so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So all that Paul is going to say about our money in a moment here is fueled from the white-hot center of the Christian faith, which is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. That Jesus, though infinitely and eternally glorious, became incarnate as a baby and came to live among people who had no spiritual resources whatsoever to present to God. And as we begin talking about money, we need to admit the fact that for all of us in the room, we all have a tendency to believe the lie that material wealth tells us, which is that your life has meaning and purpose and security and comfort as long as there are numbers that are high in the banking account. We all fall into that perspective, and we all need to be reminded of what Paul tells the Corinthians here, that you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Would you agree that when God looks at us, he sees us as we really are? Would you agree with that? That all of the externals get blown away when it comes to God. When God looks at us, he doesn't go, oh, I didn't know that that was you under there. But God sees us completely accurately. So as we step into talking about money, and as I've prayed about us talking about this topic that makes you uncomfortable and nobody really wants to talk about, and I really don't want God to get his hands on my money because I'd like my money to be my money for the things that I want to do with the my money. Where we need to start is turning our eyes away from our money, our eyes away from ourselves, and put our eyes on Christ and admit that what God has done is so profound in Jesus Christ that he drew near to spiritual beggars to lavish on them eternal and infinite glorious wealth. Because if you don't start there, your giving will get off down there. You with me? So before we begin, I just want to remind us of the fact that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Not one person is here, in here has what it takes to present to God some spiritual resource, some ability to come into his presence. We have zero to present to God. All we have is that Jesus drew near to us and gave us of his immense, spiritual, eternal, and infinite riches to bring us into right standing with God. And we will experience that for all eternity. If that's not the center of the heart of this message, you, we will get off. All of a sudden, we'll get to the end and we'll all be living by law. So when it comes to money, we've got to start with grace. So here's what you're going to see in the remainder of the few verses we're going to look at <clears throat> here together. We're going to look at uh, why you give. Number two, we're going to look at how you give. And number three, we're going to look at when you give. And we're going to do something that I've never asked us to do before together as a church, and it's going to be awesome by the end of our time. And you'll see that as we go through this passage. All right? So why to give, how to give, when to give. You with me? Let's pray. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that you might give us grace to see things about ourselves and about you that perhaps we've never seen before. That as we walk into the minefield that is money, Father, we ask for your grace and that uh, we ask for your truth to orient us, to help us to see rightly. And Father, I pray that you would give us courage 
to live as men and women governed by your spirit, not governed by our desires or governed by the amount of money in our bank accounts, but that we would be eager, ready, and willing to be a part of what you are doing on this planet for your glory and for our good. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10. Let's talk about why to give. Why should you give? Why ought God's people to be givers? Well, it flows out of that verse 9, which we've already seen. Look at verse 10. And in this matter, now let me remind you what this matter is. Paul began uh, requesting that this church set money aside as they prosper, set money aside that they might participate in meeting the needs of other churches that were in dire financial situations. If you'll keep your finger there in 2 Corinthians just for a minute and move back to 1 Corinthians 16, I showed you this last week, but I want you to, to remind you of it again. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Just flip a few pages back to that previous book, and here's what Paul says. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me." Now come back to 2 Corinthians. This was the instruction that Paul gave through Titus to the Corinthian church. And you remember from last week, if you look, just look up there in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 to the earlier part of the, of the chapter, into verse 6, here's what he says. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Paul begins with this matter reminding us that this church had an obligation, had a charge from Paul to set money aside on a week-to-week basis to be used for the advancing of God's purposes and meeting the needs of the saints. Now, watch what Paul says here in this matter. You're disciplined in your giving. You're setting money aside weekly. We'll see why they didn't do that here in a second. But the next thing that Paul says in the verse is that this benefits you. I discipled a guy for a couple of years who was a corporate banker, drove a BMW, had never thought before about giving a dime to the purposes of God. And I don't know where you are in your own. I don't know the kind of family you come from. If, if maybe the, the family you came from never talked about money, that's hush, hush. We never talk about money. Uh, I don't know if your family's flamboyant with money. Maybe you're, you, you sleep on a bed of money. Maybe that's you. I'm not sure. I'm, some people, I'm sure, do that. Uh, I'm not sure where you come from financially. But you remember how Paul began, or he, he addressed the wealth that the Corinthian church had? Just, just go up again into the previous part of the verse, in uh, a previous part of the chapter. And he says in verse 7, as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace too. So Paul says you have faith, you've got speech, you've got doctrine, you've got discernment, you've got application, you've got all of this wealth of spiritual resources. You're not lacking any such thing, he wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. But the thing that they're lacking is putting their faith into action. The thing that they're lacking is the giving. 
It's the sacrificial generosity, which means that their discipleship is disformed. It's, it's malformed. There's an area of their life where Christ is not Lord, where the grace of God has not penetrated into their life, into their decision-making. It's as if we, we like to learn about God, we like to talk about doctrines, and when it comes to money, that corner of my house, nobody gets the keys to that but me. So if our discipleship together, listen, let's be honest, if our discipleship of one another and for one another to obedience to Jesus Christ and for the glory of his name doesn't include conversations about how we're spending our money, we are limiting our spiritual growth. Because your spiritual growth is not just about what you know as a Christian. It's not about how many verses you can quote. It's not about how smart you are with the doctrines of grace. If the grace of God has not gotten to your money, you are not as mature as you ought to be. Now, that's a pretty direct statement, isn't it? Amen? It's true, though. So Paul says, this is good for you. Giving is good for you. In one of the only, actually the only, the only quote of Jesus Christ outside of the Gospels comes in Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20, Paul gets the Ephesian elders together and he charges them how they ought to be spiritual leaders. Here's what he says. You don't need to turn there. Here's what he says in Acts 20 verse 32. And now I commend you to God and the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Paul said, I had standards of God's grace when it applied to my money. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but has that truth of Jesus Christ made its way into your money? Do you believe that it's good for you to give? Do you believe that you're more blessed if you give than if you get? So why do we give? We give because it's good for us. In this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. Look at the remainder of the verse. Who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire it. The way Paul says it, he puts the desire in the front of the doing. So a year ago, you were faithful. A year ago, you had integrity because there was readiness, there was willingness, there was a desire and a devotion that was in the middle of your life and heart. You got and you understood God's grace and it was joined with doing it. We started putting money aside. We started giving. We started making a priority of thinking about others and giving to those who were in need. But somewhere along the way, we got distracted. You ever join the gym in January? That's a good verse for it. What happens in May? You go, man, I'm still paying them. I haven't been there in three months. So this church got off. It had great devotion, great heart, great diligence, great discipline in giving. We had a plan. But somewhere along the lines, we, we lost the devotion. And we lost the doing. 
There was a lapse. Now, if we take 2 Corinthians as a whole up to this point, why was there a lapse in this church? And if we go back all through the seven chapters that Paul has been talking about, all throughout all of the time that he spent begging and pleading with the Corinthian church, widen your heart to us. Our heart is not restrained by you, but you're restrained in your affections with us. And we know from the beginning part of the book that there were false teachers who made their way in and began to dissuade and to deceive the Corinthian church from following Paul who is God's ordained apostle with the message of salvation by grace through faith, the message that began this church. And now what has happened is the church is divided in its affections. The church now begins to follow not Paul, but these other false teachers who come in and have a more compelling message. In fact, you'll find out later in this book that these false teachers are so compelling, so impressive, that the Corinthian church starts to give to them instead of Paul. See, when a church has a problem with giving, it doesn't have a problem with giving. That's why Paul continues in verse 9 and gives you verse 10. Something got off in your discipleship. You started to believe a message that wasn't the, the gracious gospel message of Jesus Christ. You started to listen more to what men say about money than to what God says about Jesus and his generosity towards you. Tell me, can sin ever compromise our financial faithfulness? What do you think? Yeah. You got off. You started well. But we lost, you lost your way over the past year. Now, it's easy to read 2 Corinthians and to talk about the false gospel of, the, uh, of moralism, the false gospel of Gnosticism, the false gospel that what you need with grace is to add a little bit of law on top. And Paul continuously has to come back to make sure that this church is growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. He continues to do that. He continues to discipline them according to the gospel of grace. But if we move into 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and just talk about the false gospels out there and don't wrestle with the fact that the false gospels that we believe often affect our money, then we're going to miss, I think, what Paul is saying here. Because there's no easier way for us to view and identify the false gospels in our life than how we spend our money. Do you believe the false gospel of if I have more, I will be comfortable, I, have, I will be impressive, I will be sufficient, I will be protected? Has that creeped its way into your money? Because we have to ask that question that it's not just false gospels out there, but it's false gospels that are in here that I believe in that somehow direct my money so that my heart begins to flow not toward the purity of gospel grace, but toward another direction. So, this is what Christ warns about. Christ warns, warns this. When he, when in Mark 4, when Christ talks about the parable of the soils, he talks about the, so, the word and the seed that is sown among thorns. And it says it sprouts up, but the deceitfulness of riches chokes it. When Paul talks to Timothy, 
He says, those who desire to be rich will, fall, will pierce themselves with many pangs. So it's not just doctrine and gospel outs there. It's the internal motivations of my heart that are anti-gospel, that tell my money where to go, that make me believe that material wealth equals spiritual wealth. So why do we give? We give because it's good for you. We give because it pries our fingers off of the deceitfulness of worldly wealth. Verse 11. So now finish doing it as well. That's pretty clear, right? You got distracted, you got off, you had the desire, you had the doing, and you forgot about it. You lapsed. So what do you ought to do? Feel sad, wring your hands, talk about it some more, get some explanation. No, write the check. Finish doing it. So that your readiness in desiring may be matched by your completing it, right? Let's be men and women of integrity again. Let's not just talk about being devoted without the doing. Let's be men and women of integrity again. Let's come back to the place to where we were ready, we were devoted, we were experiencing the grace of God, that Jesus was in the center of our life, and we now wrote the check, we made the call, we followed through on what we were supposed to do. So now finish it. Now, if Paul has talked to us already about why to give, that it's good for us, it's important for us to grow into the men and women that God wants for us to be, if we give, if our spiritual lives and our financial lives are aligned, now Paul is going to move into how we give. And it shows up in the, the very last few words of this verse in verse 11. So now finish doing it as well so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, this church's lapse isn't just a New Testament idea. This isn't the only place in your Bible where a church fails to prioritize the things they ought to be doing. Do you remember the book Haggai? You may not. You, can you spell Haggai? You may not. Keep your finger in, I want to show you this so that you see it, that this is a common problem for God's people. So that, listen, if you're off, if you've failed now to steward your money the way that you ought to have stewarded it and you need to be reminded of the priorities, I want to show you this. This is in 2 Corinthians 8. It's also in Haggai chapter 1. Go back, find Matthew. Let's start there. And say, you're, we're going to be wandering all over the Old Testament looking for Haggai, which is like two pages. If you find Matthew, you're going to flip back to your left and do Malachi, Zechariah, Haggai. You know, make a note that, that spiritual fire, spiritual vitality in our lives has a tendency to go out over time, doesn't it? For many of us, we find ourselves in a place of, of uh, where the kindling is dry, where we need to rekindle our affection for God and for his grace. And consistently in this passage, when it comes to our money, Paul is going to continuously push us back to grace, to grace, to grace, to what Christ has done for us. That's the central idea in this passage. But God's people struggle with this back in Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah are the jumpstart prophets. 
They're prophets that show up when God's people have gotten distracted. They're back in the land. King Cyrus has told them to go back to their land to build the altar, to build the temple, to build the wall with Ezra and Nehemiah. And in the middle of the book of Ezra, they get discouraged and they get uh, distracted with what they're doing because they face oppression from the outside. And they say, oh, it's hard. It must not be time for us to build God's temple. Look at Haggai chapter 1. Look at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, these people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Why? Well, if you read in Ezra, you find out that there's opposition on the outside. There's governmental blockades. There's people who are writing letters and essentially telling on them to the king of Persia. And God says, these people say it's not time to rebuild the house. The house is the central place of God's worship among his Old Testament people. Verse 3, then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? God has a way with words, doesn't he? If you want to put a note in Haggai chapter 1, you've got, that's probably the clean part of your Bible. But if you want to put a note there that says sarcasm, that's what that is. What do you think? Is it time for you to live in paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Now therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You've sown much, you've harvested little. You eat, you never have enough. You drink, you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one's warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Your needs aren't met. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and I may be glorified, said the Lord. You looked for much and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins while each of you busies himself with his own house. So don't miss this. Come back to 2 Corinthians. This church got distracted. This church got focused, not so much on others, not the needs which other people had, not the advancement of God's gospel of grace, not on Paul and the ministry to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. They got distracted. That their church became about their church. They couldn't understand the fact that they were a part of God's purposes on this planet to move the gospel of grace forward. So, watch Paul's line of reasoning here. Number one, we started with what? The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Number two, you had an eagerness, you had a readiness, you were ready to go, but you got distracted. So number three, let's get our priorities in line. So we've got our priorities, our heart, and the gospel of grace. That has all been put back in line. Paul all put back into joint. Now Paul is going to talk about if those, all of those heart issues are ready. There's a diligence and a doing along with my devotion. There's a readiness on my part. And my giving is fueled by the grace of God. Well, how do I do it, Paul? Tell me what I ought to do. Give me some specifics. And it comes with those last few words that I just said. Out of what you have. Watch verse 12. For if the readiness is there, it's acceptable. So what does God care about? God cares in the beginning about me getting my heart right, me knowing about the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and then being prepared to be a part of what God is doing on this planet. 
Now he's gonna get into the nitty gritty. He's gonna get into the specifics. It's acceptable. Well, acceptable to who? It's acceptable to God. Well, what's acceptable to God? What do you think? Does God demand the same from every single person in this room when it comes to financial things? What do you think Paul's going to do? You think Paul's going to give you a percentage? Watch what he does. It's fantastic. It's brilliant. It is acceptable according to what a person has. Which means if you make 40 grand a year, or if you make 400 grand a year, it is acceptable not according to some arbitrary standard. Now, if somebody asked you today, somebody leaned over to you right now in the middle of our service and said, psst, psst, how much do I give? Don't you have a temptation to want to write a law right there? Don't you want to give a percentage? Don't you want to give a number? And Paul won't do it. It's acceptable according to what you have, which means this church, if we know from 1 Corinthians 11, you know, the rich guys show up early and they eat all the communion, they all get drunk, which is a problem in a church from time to time. Not in our church, because we don't give you enough to drink. Not the point. The point is, this church had the poor who showed up late to the meal, and all the meal was gone, and all the rich guys were drunk. So what you have in the Corinthian church is a disparity, a diversity of financial means within the congregation. And what Paul is going to say is he first begins with our hearts individually. The grace of God, the readiness, the desire to make his, God's priorities my priorities. Then he says you should give. And it's acceptable to God that you give according to what you have. So your giving ought to be, we said this last week, proportionate. If you make a lot, your giving ought to be in proportion to the amount of money that you make. If you make a little, your giving ought to be in proportion to what you make that's little. You with me so far? Now, we all feel this temptation. Because at the very point where Paul could give law, he doesn't. Isn't that amazing? You should be amazed at what Paul just said there. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable to give. Well, what, what? What, Paul? 20%, 30%, 40%, 60%, 3%? What is the percent? Give me the amount. Give me the number. If you would give me the number, I would know what's acceptable to God for me to give. And Paul won't do it. What Paul will do is drive your motivations back into you doing the hard work of examining the amount of money you make and then giving in proportion to the amount of money that you make. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that frustrating? That's the worst, isn't it? Would you just give me, Paul gets ready to close the deal. And he goes, you decide. It's acceptable according to what you have. It's acceptable according to what you make. Which tells us something. One, that if I make 400 grand a year, 500 grand a year, 600, whatever you make, 1.2 million. 1.2 million? Oh, billion. Wow. Okay. That I ought not give like I'm making 40, right? I ought to give in proportion with the amount that I make. But also, the beautiful thing about this is that if you're making 40 
and you only give in proportion to what you have, nobody looks at that gift and says it's less than. Because that person is valued and accepted by God according to what they have. You with me? So you got, Paul takes care of this on both sides. If he gave a percentage, he could say it's 16%. And to some of the wealthy, 16% ain't that big a deal. But some, to the some who are poor, the 16% might be severe. So what Paul does is lobby the grace of God back into your court so that you might do the hard work of asking the question, where do I stand with God? How do I understand his grace? And does his grace inform my giving according to what I have? Now, verse 13. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. We don't alleviate poverty by creating it here. Don't miss that. Because what Paul is about to do is talk about needs. What he's not going to do is, uh, God's not a communist in that way. He doesn't say, everybody makes 40 grand. Enjoy your life. God allows for diversity of financial means among his people. And he's saying, the reason he says what he just said, it's acceptable according to what you have, is that the poor might not be crushed over the demand of the law. Which is what he's saying in verse 13. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burdened. So, why to give? It's good for you. How to give? According to what you have. But let's look at when to give. Because now Paul is going to look at the needs of the churches. He's going to highlight real difficult situations that these churches are in. I don't mean that others should be eased and you burden, but as a matter of fairness. It's the word for equality. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and that there may be fairness. See, God's not a communist in that he uh, limits everybody to making a certain amount of money and he only disperses it to, to people. You've got diversity, like I said, a financial means of financial wealth. But what God does expect of his New Testament covenant people is that all the needs ought to be met. That's his point about the Corinthian church. The Corinthian church is far better off than the Macedonian church was. In fact, the Macedonian gift that Paul talks about in the early part of this chapter probably paled in comparison to the amount of money that the Corinthian church could give. They were in a much better financial situation. And Paul says, it's not that everybody's going to make the same. But what Paul is saying, that he's making sure that all the needs are met. So that whether poor or rich, you can give out of what you have. It is acceptable to God. And Paul says that as a matter of fairness, not that they might have your money, but that their needs might be met by the abundance you have at the present time. You see that? so that their abundance may supply your need and there may be fairness. Now, I want to draw your attention to one, just a few words right in the middle of this, this verse. Paul recognizes something about material wealth. As a matter of fairness, your abundance when? At the present time. 
What does Paul recognize about material wealth? It can be gone like that. Amen? You can have it, it can be gone. The stock market can go and you might be in a position where you might be asking for help and you might be asking for need from your brothers and sisters in Christ who are in another situation and have more than you do. So, Paul recognizes. And these needs, listen, these need, the word he uses here for need that should supply their need, it's only used one time out of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and chapter 9. And it's used when Jesus talks about the poor widow putting in all she had to live on. So what situation are these Jerusalem, poor Jerusalem saints in? They're at the end. They have nothing. Their savings are gone. They're facing day-to-day needs. And Paul is telling this church, do you have an abundance as in, well, define for me abundance in this passage. Abundance in this passage is having more than what your daily needs require. That, to Paul, is abundance. So that your abundance at the present time, do you have beyond what you need to meet the needs that you have today? Then you have an abundance. Then you have an opportunity to be a part of meeting the needs of people who live day-to-day needs. So when do we give? We give in situations when all of our needs are met and we have above and beyond. Now watch what Paul does to drive this point home. Your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need and there might be fairness. So not only does Paul point to the uh, transitory nature of material wealth. But also, implicitly in this, Paul says that the opportunity to give might not last forever. You might miss an opportunity to partake of this act of grace. Now with that in mind, watch what Paul says because watch what Paul does here is fantastic. Look at verse 15. As it is written, And Paul is going to write to us an Old Testament passage. And the Old Testament passage Paul is going to use from Exodus chapter 16. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Now, Exodus 16 is the story of manna. The nation of Israel comes out after seeing God's miraculous salvation during the Red Sea crossing, and they come out, and they're hungry, and they're bitter, and they're angry, and they're tired because they get grumpy when they're hungry. Like we all do. And they start complaining to God. And God says, I'm going to provide for your needs. And I'm going to provide it daily. And they, what God does is he gives them manna, which in Hebrew means what is it? We don't know what it is. It's something that shows up in the morning. Now, a few things about manna that I think are important for us to understand when we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. One, manna was a daily thing. Number two, you were meant to gather manna for the amount of people in your household. A certain amount for each person in your household. You could only gather what that person could eat in one day. You had to gather it before noon because when noon hit, the manna was gone, which means you needed to work for it. And the verse that Paul uses here in quoting back into Exodus chapter 16 is making light of the fact that God in his power And it says back in Exodus 16 that those who gathered much had nothing left over. 
Which means it doesn't matter how hard you worked. When it started, you started to distribute it to your household. You got to the end and the last scoop was given and everyone was fed. And number two, those who ever, who ever gathered little. What about the elderly or the pregnant or the nursing or the people who couldn't go out and gather as much? What God did was make sure that all of the little amount that they had somehow miraculously met their needs that day. And what you had during the desert wanderings is that you had no manna store. You had nobody who gathered up extra manna and sold it on the side. Because the manna that you kept, that you secretly tried to squirrel away, it said it bred worms and stank. So that God kept his people in the place of relying upon his provision and his generosity every single day for 40 years. Every day their needs were met. Every day we had enough. Every day there was sufficient. It didn't matter if I gathered with a rake and a wheelbarrow. We always ran out at the end of the day and I had to turn my eyes to heaven and to say, God, give us this day our daily bread. So the question is, why does Paul use that here? Because he starts with the grace of God. He starts with the grace of Jesus Christ. His lavish generosity upon us. And the thing that is profoundly lacking from 2 Corinthians 8, 10 to 15 is law. It's absent. In the very place you would expect Paul to mandate the church give a certain amount. Mandate that they ought to uh, give X percentage. Paul says the grace of God, the priority of his purposes, your eagerness, your willingness, your readiness, how much ever you have at the time. And God in this passage and through Paul's teaching shows us that when it comes to the New Testament and we understand the grace of God rightly, God believes and thinks that Jesus is a compelling reason enough to motivate our giving toward need. He doesn't have to say anything else. He doesn't have to give us a percentage. He's already put his generosity and lavish grace on display in Jesus Christ for us. So by the end, all Paul says is you watch how God is going to meet the needs of his people as we preach Christ and lift up his grace. And Paul says what I'm going to do is give you the opportunity to partake of this act of grace. Is God going to meet the needs of his people? Say yes. Yes, he's going to meet the needs of his people. Which means when I have more than I need, I am invited into an opportunity to partake of God's grace toward others in meeting their needs. You with me? And Paul won't force you. He won't manipulate you. He won't try to close the deal. He'll lift up Christ. He'll preach his grace. He'll talk about his poverty. He'll talk about the wealth that we've received. And then he says, you decide. Well, that's kind of risky, don't you think? Not to Paul. Paul thinks Jesus is compelling enough. So here's what I want us to do. This is something we haven't done before. But we've got, uh, it would be remiss of us 
to look at a passage like this and not consider how we might be a part of meeting the needs of other people and other places who are moving the gospel message forward. So we're gonna do something today that we haven't done before. We're gonna open a particular line item in our budget called the Global uh, Missions Partnership. And you've got a QR code on the back of your bulletin that you were handed on the way in. And we're gonna keep it open for one week. And we're gonna ask, not one dime of what we're asking you to give is gonna go to Citadel Square today. It's gonna go to two particular places. One is a church that we're partnered with in Costa Rica. Some of you have been there, El Lugar Church pastored by a man named Alonzo. And the other is a church uh, in Konkan, Thailand, pastored by Pastor Guy. Both of those individuals have been in our church here in the past six months. And these churches are pushing forward discipleship, the preaching of God's word, and evangelism to the lost in the areas where they live. And these churches are alive and rely upon the gifts that come from outside for them to be able to do gospel work where they're doing. We haven't talked to them about this. We don't know exactly all the needs that we're facing. We, can, we give to them a certain percentage in our budget from a year-to-year basis, but I thought this is an opportunity for us. If you are in a place of abundance, to be able to give to what God is doing in other places with people you haven't maybe seen before, but to advance the mission of God in Thailand and in Costa Rica. So here's what you need to do. You need to take your phone and point it at that QR code. You need to talk to your spouse if you are married. Don't just start Venmoing people in Costa Rica. Okay? Have that conversation. And you pray and you look at what God has given you at this present time and you ask God, how do you want me to be involved? And you give out of the heart and motivation that you have. And we're going to bless these churches. It's going to be awesome. I can't wait to see what our church does to advance the gospel in these places through giving. All right? So do that. That'll be open for how long? A week. It'll be open for a week, and we'll let you know what you gave uh, in eight days. Let's pray. Father, what an important passage this is for us. Would you give us the hearts of servants and stewards to put uh, what is in our hands into your hands. Father, would you make us a generous people who are eager and ready to give out of what we have? Father, for all of us in the room who deal with uh, fear over our needs being met, who deal with uncertainty about, about our future, I pray that the grace of God in Jesus Christ might be the white hot center of our Christian lives. I pray that we might be a people that longs to give, that is eager to give. That we might be voluntary and sacrificial and joyful and cheerful in the ways that we give to advance what you are doing around the earth. So Father, would you give us the courage to continue to preach the gospel grace that is available to us in Jesus Christ. And would we be people that are shaped and formed by that reality, repenting of our false gospels, and living in light of the grace of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.